21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. I guess the first thing I've felt most passionate about lately is that I think there's a lot of discussion about remote work that skips over kind of a fundamental point, which is that all of the discussions are about the productivity of the employees. All of the discussions you see when you look at larger companies asking folks to return to the office or about our employees weren't productive, which kind of implies like they were hanging out watching Netflix or whatever. And I'm not even saying that wasn't happening. I'm sure there was an element of that. I've worked from home for 20 years and I've led remote teams for 20 years. And I've led remote teams for 20 years on projects that work with the largest technology companies on the planet, you know, Fortune 50, Fortune 100. So we're doing very meaningful, um, meaty work in a remote environment. But I'll tell you the thing that I feel that's most missing, um, and I got a lot of interesting engagement on a recent LinkedIn post when I shared this, is I said, but what about the managers? Um, there's very little discussion. I, I would argue no discussion about whether we equipped managers to effectively manage in a remote environment. And I would argue that if the only decision an executive leader is making is that we can't measure productivity when unless people are in the office, well, then you're not even measuring the right thing. You're just measuring activity at that point. And then there's a million other things that I think are negative outcomes of not addressing that fundamental question. You know, yes, maybe employees weren't as productive, some employees in some environments and in some companies, but the managers, I would argue, were ill-equipped or not equipped at all to manage in a remote environment. And that is fundamentally a different way of managing. I have had an office for a period of time, but I've lion's share of my time has been remote. And clearly before I became an entrepreneur, I also worked in an office. So I do understand both settings pretty intimately. Um, but I can tell you, it's a very different set of skills to manage remotely. And I think this is a big gap and we're doing a big disservice to employees if we leave the impression that they are a whole, solely or 100% to blame for any lack of productivity. And I just, I, that's something I feel very passionate about. and. I think if fundamentally you haven't asked yourself the question, if you're hybrid or remote, um, am I training my managers to be effective remote managers? I think that's a huge gap and I would get on it right away. And now in the light of remote work, have you noticed any trends in engagement compared to traditional settings as measured by the Gallup Q12? Are there any statistics to support these observations? Here's the interesting thing. A lot of these decisions are being made without any statistics. I mean, we've even seen without naming specific companies, although I think anybody could go see some of these are the largest companies on the planet who are posting these kinds of things. Um, you know, whether they're big financial firms or big tech firms, you know, they're regularly saying we need people back into the office and the employees are saying, well, upon what data are you making this decision? Like, how are you proving that we weren't productive? 
And the answer universally is, well, we don't have any data or we don't have to give you that data or we've seen when you're back in the office. I mean, these very like nebulous ways of responding. And so um, I think the short answer to um, some of the question is that we, we don't have enough data to really say that it doesn't work remote. Um, what we have is like personal preferences of executives who probably for the lion's share of their career, they worked in an office um, and they themselves are basically saying, well, I think somewhat maybe um, unnoticed to themselves, well, I work well this way. So hence, I must have my team this way. Or even worse yet, um, the only way I can really understand if my team's productive or the only way I know how to collaborate is if someone's standing in front of me. Um, and I, I think that's just a fallacy. There's been years, decades centuries if you want to go as far back as like writing letters to people where collaboration happened remotely um and so i don't i don't think the idea of a conference room and whiteboards and chairs is what leads to good collaboration or good engagement um i think that's a culture thing and i think it's a culture thing and it's a willingness to listen to other opinions and it's a willingness to maybe have a um a fluid enough culture or a um you know, culture that kind of allows for people to engage, even if they're not, you know, with all the physical presence that you might have if you're sitting in a room. Um, and there's a lot of things I can say about ways to do it right or wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, I, I I think fundamentally a lot of these decisions about engagement aren't even based on any meaningful data. Um, but I think what you can objectively say is that there are a lot of remote companies that existed before um, the outbreak of COVID. There were many companies that experimented with remote during COVID. And um, many of those companies actually have thrived based, based on objective metrics like growth, employee count, revenue, et cetera. So it's, it's a complete fallacy to say that a remote company can't be productive because we have many companies on the planet that you could just objectively look at their growth and say, these are companies that are obviously meeting the needs of their customers and they're benefiting and growing as a result. And they're a remote company. So inherent um, to the discussion can't be that remote is unproductive. It, it just doesn't it just doesn't compute. It must mean that there's something about that company in the way that it's led or the way that it's culturally established um, or the way they kind of allow for work to happen um, that simply doesn't support remote. Um, and maybe there's even a mix of the right employees being hired um, to the ones that maybe thrive more in remote. But like I said, it's a complete fallacy to say that the, the best productivity happens in the office. I mean, that's, that's just ludicrous based on a million things you could point to. Well, Cascade Insights, we serve a particular market. We just serve B2B technology companies. So you can think of that as the, you know, Amazons and Googles and Microsofts of the world on one side, as well as like mid-market companies that, you know, maybe have a SaaS offering that targets kind of a particular industry all the way down to startups. And for them, um, we do a few things. Um, we help with uh, positioning and messaging. Uh, we also help them understand their competitive landscape more effectively. Um, and we do those things through 
affected market research and also through marketing services. But we're a data first company. Um, you know, the lion's share of our work always kind of begins with some form of research. And from that base, then we can help a client make some really good decisions about what they should do next so they can act with clarity. So they can actually like take a step forward in good faith and know that they're making the right decisions. And then we obviously sometimes will help them activate that research through like good marketing efforts and sales enablement efforts and things like that. Let's talk about Age of Nero. Can you explain what it means and its implications for consulting firms today? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, what I started calling the Age of Narrow is really this concept that I think derives out of what we are already doing in our personal lives. Um, probably more than in any other time I could think of. I mean, I love history and I, I can't honestly think of a time where what I'm about to say ever existed before in that we have the ability to kind of expose ourselves and um, remain in very narrow categories of information and entertainment. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing I'm saying. Um, I mean, when I think of the age of narrow, I'm not necessarily implying narrow thinking. I'm just implying that we have access to kind of narrow streams of things that we can engage with. So if you just wanted to watch British historical period dramas all night long, well, for the next 365 days, you could do that. Um, you know, your media consumption habits can be very narrow. Your uh, news consumption habits can be very narrow. Your um, product uh, consumption ha habits can be very narrow. I mean, um, you know, I had a, a brother-in-law who, you know, really likes unique chips from different parts of the world. And so I can go to Amazon UK and order all their potato chips and give him potato chips he's never heard of before. And he can just continually go down the road of, you know, more and more unique potato chips. Um this we didn't have this before. There's a whole bunch of factors that have led to that. I mean, the internet and e-commerce and all those things. But um, what I think it's created on the business side is just an amplification that people want narrow service offerings. Right? They they see it in their personal lives. They understand that they can have kind of whatever they want in whatever narrow capacity they want, and they fully expect you as a service firm to be narrowly aligned with them. Now we've always had the concept of specialization, but what I'm suggesting is that it's it's kind of squared or like amplified now in a way that that's um, just uh, very significant, particularly if you own a smaller firm and you're trying to differentiate. Um, I think it's, it's frankly deadly these days to start out broad or even imply that you'll get broad in a reasonable amount of time because Ultimately, people, when they're searching and they're looking for a solution, they're looking for something very narrowly casted to them. And now, and then here's another benefit I feel of doing that. Um, right along with this kind of trend of people wanting stuff very narrow, there's also a big distrust of content. And I, I think that's an objective statement. I think I think people don't trust content that they see. Um maybe almost from the start, and then they're trying to determine if it can be trustworthy. And that, that type of content spans anything, really, whether that's a website to market a product, or it's a forum post, or it's a podcast, or it's a video or whatever. Um, I think, unfortunately, we've all been trained to kind of wonder, like, what's the bias of the presenter? What's the underlying thrust of the argument that's trying to be made? What am I missing? Um, some of that goes back to just, I think, the natural reluctance that you have when you purchase a product that you want to understand 
um, what is its limits, right? Where does it where does it fail to achieve like what I might want? And where I think there's a strength in being narrow and is that if you define yourself to the market, if you say like, I'm narrow in this way and these, there's these things that I don't do um, and very explicitly calling that out. And, and th that sounds super simplistic, but I, I would ask anyone who owns a website, like you're the, you're the person who ultimately owns that website. You're a leader in the company. Um, where does your website say you don't do something? Um, because most of the time what happens is people will hedge and they'll, they'll, they won't quite get there. They'll say what they do, but they'll kind of leave it open to, but we might be able to, right? And here's where I'm going with this. I would say that what you will find if you embrace the age of narrow and you say, all right, I'm going to be narrow I'm going to set our boundaries. I'm even going to communicate about those boundaries to a degree, uh, maybe even a significant degree. You're going to create trust because the one thing I believe people wonder about when they listen to or engage with any piece of content is they're wondering kind of what its limits are, you know, or what its boundaries are. You know, if I'm reading a book, a uh, biography of a president, right? I'm currently reading a biography on every U.S. president that we've ever had. I'm currently up to Lyndon Johnson. So obviously I've been on this road for a while. Um, every time I read one of those, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, well, what's the bias of the author? And, you know, was this a fan of the administration, especially as I get to presidents that um, that have only passed in the recent last few decades, or maybe some people that, you know, worked in that administration or perhaps still alive and maybe were interviewed for the book. Right. Um, you know, I want to I want to understand the biases that maybe impacted this. What, what were the limits of the perception of the, the writer? And I think there's a power in defining where your boundaries are. And, and then people will I, I have seen it time and time again. I mean, feedback on our own website, because we're very, very clear about who we serve and who we don't. And people will call that out all the time. I was on the phone just the other day with somebody that was a new lead and they're like, I loved your guys' website. It was clear. I knew exactly what you do. I know exactly what you didn't. I knew that you were a fit for me. Now, that means I must be repelling certain types of customers. I must be. But that's okay because I know the kind of customer segments I want to serve. And I know the ones that I can monetize the best and engage with the best and that I can serve the best. And so um, I think there's kind of a nice virtuous cycle to it, right? If you as the leader understand that telling the world what you don't do is actually kind of has an inherent power in it. Um, I think not only are you doing yourself good favors, but I think you're also doing good work because you're taking away that emotional concern people have about, can I trust you? Um, and I've had numerous people over the years. I, I started doing this in sales, um, you know, long before I even had Cascade because I had a company before this one I grew and sold. And um it was just kind of part of the way I sold. You know, I, I don't necessarily even know if it was a conscious decision. I just would very regularly say, you know, we do this and this and this and and but we don't serve this. And, and inevitably, I, I, you could even see people react positively to it. The minute you said that, it was like they were no longer on the hunt to determine what you were unsafe to use for. Right. Um, and I I think it, and I've had positive reactions to it my whole career. Um, people basically said, you know, almost thank you. Well, I have said thank you sometimes for letting me know. Um, and one last thing on it is that here's the other problem with not doing it, you know, because there might be somebody listening who says, well, I'm never doing that. Right. And I'd say, well, here's the thing. The person who's going to do it is your competitor. 
Because ultimately, we all live in a competitive marketplace. And somewhere out there, there's a conversation, you know, most deals are competitive. And so the competitor is going to define your limits for you. And it's probably going to be wrong. Uh, and maybe not shaped the way that fence isn't going to cover the territory that you really want it to. Um, and I would say if you define it yourself, that's very powerful, especially if that competitor is unwilling to do the same. And so now you have a sales conversation where you're clearly lined up with their goals and they know what you can do and what you can't. And the other competitor is just trying to leave it quite vague and a little open-ended. And I can tell you that, you know, nine or 99 times out of a hundred, um, they're going to pick you. And um, anyway, that's that's what I think of the agent arrow. So it's a mixture of what's happening culturally and it's a mixture of some trends that perhaps we've always had historically about specialization, but it's been kind of amplified by this um, unwillingness to trust content, including marketing messaging and sales messaging. And, and I think the best way to cut through it is to do kind of an audit of yourself and ask, you know, have I told the market what I don't do and try that out. And I, I can just tell you from personal experience, you're going to end up liking the outcome. Let's talk about you. You're a keynote speaker, an author, and you also run a business. Can you share a bit about your daily routine and how you manage to do so many different things? If someone was to say to me what's probably the thing that led to me being successful, and I have a very hard time talking about that that way because I maybe part of it is because I, I feel that judgment only comes at the end, right? Um, I don't. I don't really think you kind of evaluate that in the middle of the journey. I think that's maybe a place where people get in trouble as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, whether that's a successful exit or just the end of your business career, right? You know, I feel the judgment kind of comes at that point. But but that aside, like if you if you were to say like I've had a level of success, what's led to it? Um, I think it's really one thing. Um, I'm pathologically incapable of learning something and not wanting to teach it to somebody else. I mean, like I am, I am at heart a teacher and I, and I've always been, I mean, when I was in second grade and father Boyvin wandered into the house, I heard this story years later. Um, he used to call me the little professor and it wasn't because I was moving around the house pontificating as a second grader. I think it was just because he saw, I like to learn and I like to communicate what I learned. Um, all my hobbies have involved some form of training and mentoring um, uh, or, or education of self and others, you know, even outside of the business environment. And um, I found that in a way it, it's a superpower, I think, because it solves so many problems. Right. I mean, one, if you're an educator, um, you tend to be open to other perspectives. That doesn't mean necessarily that you agree with every perspective. I mean, one of the things I tell business leaders all the time and really almost anybody is, you know, read stuff you disagree with, like really read it, read it from the top to the bottom, you know, whether that's a news site you disagree with or a business book you disagree with, you know, it doesn't mean you agree with it in the end, but I think there's something, there's something just inherent that comes um, 
to kind of grow within us. I mean, to, to, I, I know that's a little spiritual, but it's not I don't really quite mean it that way, but like that grows within us when we, we tangle and we wrestle with something that we disagree with, even if ultimately we decide not to agree with it. I think there's something that just stretches us and grows us. And, and, um, and like I said, again, it's not about agreeing with it. I think that's, that's equal fallacy. Like those who don't read anything they disagree with and those that only read it to agree with it. Um, I think that the moment of true learning comes when you, you actually get done with it and you say, all right, well, all right, this is what I'm going to take away from it, but this is what I'm not, you know, it's that, that judgment moment. That's, that's really fundamental. And, um, and so, so anyway, I, I feel like on the education side, it's huge. And I feel like to me, I'm always thinking of how I can, I can equip people. How can I mentor people? How can I, um, make them better? Um, and, and that's, that's fundamental. You know, I, I remember reading something the other day that also lined up with, I think a little bit of maybe my track record, I guess, or whatever is, um, I think this was an HBR article, but it might've been something else. And it said, you know, the old way of managing, and it's funny because this will be like what's old is new again. The old way of managing, meaning of recent times, is as a manager to keep going to your employees and saying, you know, what can I do to help you? But that's not really a teacher. Um, that might be more like, you know, counseling. Um, and that's valuable too. But the new way of management, which I feel in some ways is the old way, um, is to go to your direct and say, what do you need to be successful? And um, I've kind of always led that way. And I, I think a little bit of it is that I always feel like I want to teach people to equip them. You know, I don't want to just lead them. So I have a flock of people who are just minions around me who just do what I say. Um, I ultimately want these people to excel and and in their own areas and domains to, you know, be way better than anything I could ever hope to be. Um, and I think that's, that's just a key part of it. Um, so, you know, what's the biggest thing for my success is that um, I'm a teacher first and I'm kind of a business leader second. And I think, and, and I have, I, and I just to say too, I mean, anybody by the time they get to the age of 52, almost 53, you know, have had people say things back to them. And so, you know, you're not living in an echo chamber and I, I can say hands down, it's, it's probably the biggest thing I've ever heard anybody say to me. Um, you know, when they maybe move on from here to another job or they do different things that they'll, they'll always say, I really appreciate how you taught or mentored me. And, um, that's, that's to me a win. I mean, that's a bigger win than a new contract and a, you know, bigger team or whatever, you know, I just, uh, I just want to feel like I've been able to kind of move people along their journey. And, and that's kind of who I am. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Imagine a space where triumphs, trials, and tales of entrepreneurship come alive. Welcome to the 21st Century Entrepreneurship Podcast, a gold awarded journey hosted by Martin Piskorik, connecting with listeners in 95 countries and ranking in the top 0.5% of all podcasts. Join our exclusive community, elevate your perspective and embark on the path to success.
So if you want to learn a little bit more about um, me or Cascade, um, you can go to cascadeinsights.com and um, plenty of good information there about um, who we serve and, and who we don't. And um, so, you know, if you're a B2B technology company and you're looking for somebody who can help you make good decisions and help you act with clarity, um, that's definitely who we are. Uh, as far as me personally, um, I'm always happy to talk to entrepreneurs or small company owners. It, it doesn't have to be about the services we offer. I just, uh, like I said before, multiple times, I'm, I'm happy to teach and mentor if there's a way I can help you with that. And um, you could just email me at Sean, um, S-E-A-N at CascadeInsights.com. And uh, just thanks for having me on the show.